Good morning, guys. Good to see you, especially when it's uh, fall break. If you're missing some some folks at your tables, that's probably where they're all, they are. They're down in Sandestin or uh, New Orleans or somewhere helping out, uh, spending their fall break. Glad to see you here. Glad you're still in town. Uh, don't be jealous of those who got out of town with their kiddos this week. We are studying Joel, and if you'll take your Bibles and turn to page 1426 on your study Bible, there we have Joel chapter 1. And we saw last week, as we just introduced it, that uh, Joel tells us everything about himself in verse 1. He's the son of Pethuel. That's it. Uh, and we can, we can speculate from the contents of Joel about when this was written. And we're going to have to speculate because he doesn't tell us what kings uh, he served under. He doesn't tell us anything that gives us a date, uh, you know, an event that happened at a certain date that we can check in history. So we're left to speculation. Uh, I told you that I'm, I'm siding with uh, the scholars who suggest that it was just before the Babylonian invasion. Uh, he's clearly, it seems to me, speaking to the southern kingdom, which is Judah, where the capital is Jerusalem. The northern kingdom, you remember, uh, went heretical first. And they worshipped other gods, and they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. So we believe that this is probably late 6th century B.C., which would uh, be, or rather late 7th century B.C., which would be around 605, 610, something like that, before the Babylonians come in 586, finally. They came three times to besiege Jerusalem and invade her, but she, they finally took her off in 586 B.C. So we believe that Joel is probably speaking before the Babylonian captivity, clearly to the southern kingdom, because we saw last time how many times he mentions Zion or Jerusalem uh, or Judah, a, a total of uh, 19 times uh, one of those three uh, words is mentioned. So obviously addressing himself to the capital of the southern kingdom. We saw that he is warning the people about a judgment that is coming, and he uses the concept, the day of the Lord, five times in this book, uh, this, in these three chapters. We'll look at this in just a moment. And you find the day of the Lord only used 11 times in other parts of the Old Testament. So obviously in Joel, you have a concentration on this topic, the day of the Lord. We saw last week that the day of the Lord is a Near Eastern concept that had to do with the day of the king, when the day of the, the, the when the sovereign shows up at the battle, if he is truly great, the very day he shows up, the battle is over and it's done, it's won, there's a victory. And so what Joel is saying, the king of kings, when he shows up, it's all over. It'll be the day of the sovereign king, the Lord himself, Jehovah. So that's the concept he's using. Now, we saw, first of all, last time that natural disasters should call, uh, cause us to call upon the Lord. And we talked about the natural disaster Katrina and looked at some of the ways in which we responded to Katrina. Not all, all of them have been godly responses, as you can tell. Uh, but what we ought to be doing is looking to the Lord, because uh, another concept that is in Joel, and we'll pick this up specifically here in a few moments, is that God is in charge of history. So <clears throat> we're looking at the avian flu right now. And this thing is terrifying, isn't it? I mean, this flu bug, if it cuts loose, this virus... Uh, it looks like it's going to just wipe out about two million pairs of lungs in, in, in America or, or it could wipe out millions of people across the world, uh, this avian flu. And, you know, we always want to get our, you know, the older you are, the more you want to get your flu shots, you know, get ready for the winter. But this thing's looking very vicious. 
and it could just wipe out like a plague many, many uh, in, in our world. Well, what, how should we respond to the avian flu? Well, first of all, we take all natural measures, all reasonable measures to try to protect ourselves. That's, that's wise. That's godly. But then we also ought to be calling upon the Lord because the Lord is sovereign over the avian flu. In fact, we're going to see it's even, even, even more than that. Uh, he may even be behind it, mightn't he? We'll look and see what Joel says about the locusts. And we saw that he's using the locusts to, to speak of an event that's already happened or getting ready to happen. And then we see that these locusts are symbolizing for us these human locusts who are going to come from Babylon. And then that day is symbolic of an ultimate day when God with his heavenly host comes and brings the conclusion to all of history around the world. So you have about three layers of judgment that are coming. And any time there's a natural disaster, that first natural disaster of the, of the locusts, or in this case the avian flu or, or a hurricane, it ought to arrest us, get our attention, and cause us to call upon the Lord. Now, we noticed last week that God speaks to the prophet in verse 1. This is very important. When you're reading the Bible, you're reading God's word that he's given to a prophet or an apostle. He spoke to that prophet or apostle. The apostle or prophet speaks to us with God's word. That's what happens in verses 2 through 20. Now the prophet speaks to us in the name of the Lord. Now, he does this with about four different groups of people. And you'll notice in verses 2 through 4, he first of all speaks to the elders. And let's see what he says here. Hear this, you elders, verse 2. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? See, first of all, he's saying, have you ever had a Katrina before in your life? Have you seen much like, you know, Andrew came and wiped out southern Miami. But have you ever seen anything like Katrina? No, you haven't. Uh, not, not since 1906 in, the, uh, in San Francisco have you seen something like this. So isn't, don't you get the idea this is something new? Is God getting our attention? Then he says, verse 3, Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. He uses about four different words there for locusts to speak of the the very young. And, you know, we talked about the process of, of molting and so forth with the locusts. And he uses all those descriptions here and some who have witnessed a locust. In fact, I, I think I mentioned to you in 1915, there was a major locust invasion in Syrio-Palestine. And natural, uh, National Geographic recorded it. And the one who wrote that article said, it's amazing how accurate the description is in the prophecy of Joel about actually what happens in a locust invasion. And it's that verse right there. That what the, the little ones don't get, the, mom, the mamas get, and what they don't get, the bigger ones get. It just clean you out. So in one verse, in a very poetic way, Joel has summarized how these locusts are working. But he's saying to it, he's saying, has anything like this ever happened? Has it caught your attention? Well, then what? Teach the children. This is one of the major duties of a, hus- of a father and a husband. For those of you who are heading homes, uh, you'll notice, where does he start? He starts with the elders. That means the senior guys. And you're a senior guy if you're a father in, in this culture. So if you are a person of influence, first thing you must do is be an educator. Teach your children about these things. So you're at the dining room table and your kids will ask, 
Daddy, I mean, I remember when my oldest kid was four years old. He said, this was at the dining room table. He said, Daddy, God is good, right? Yes, son. I knew where he was going. He said, there are lots of bad things in this world, aren't there, Daddy? Yes. Daddy, why is that? (laughs) You know, where did evil come from? The most profound question is the simplest question. And you've got these dining room table, well, let's say TV tray conversations uh, with your kids. And here is your teaching moment. You may think of your mealtime as the time just to fill your body up with food and get fuel to go on for another four hours. But I'm telling you, the mealtimes are something else, guys. They are times to relate and connect and teach and love and listen. And this is, I'll just tell you, I mean, including family devotions, the most important teaching times in my life have been around our, either our dining room table or the TV tray when we're having family discussions. There's where you teach. You teach as you walk through the way. If you want to know how to teach your child something very important, you wait until they're in a circumstance where that principle is at stake, where they get rejected by a friend. Now what do I do? Or your son's being attacked on the playground, and he's asking you, what do I do? Those are the moments when you teach, when everything that you believe is going to be worked into their lives, because now you have a case study. This is the reason that business schools use the case study method. That's the way you learn. Give me a case. Give me something practical. Down, down and dirty. And then I'll take the principles and apply it to it. And guys, this is where you teach, whether it's in business, if you're an executive. I mean, what does, uh, was it Jack Welch? If I got the right one? Yeah, I guess it was Jack Welch who said that what he did in his business over and over again, teach, 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 teach. And if you're a CEO or if you're a manager, you got to teach, 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 teach. And how do you teach? You take the things that are practically Hitting your people. What are the situations they're dealing with? And you take one of those once a month and you sit down with them and say, let's walk through this. I mean, you just, and, and then you take the real cases that come and you walk through them and you teach as you go. And you're building a library of knowledge among those people that are in your midst. So you'll see here, Joel, the, the preacher, is just calling out, dads, elders, old people, people with influence, tell your children. Don't just tell them about the locusts. Oh, yeah, I remember in 2005 when Katrina hit. Man, that was really something. Kids, you've never seen anything like this. No, it's not just that. It's, let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you what you do when that happens. Or, you know, those of you who served in in a a battle or or a war, and especially if you're a grandparent, it's, it's not just that you enjoy telling your grandchildren your war stories. Especially your grandsons. They love to hear the war stories. Listen, I love to hear my father-in-law's war stories. I love to hear my dad's war stories, World War II. And I've heard some of these stories a blue jillion times, and I want to hear them again. Why? Because when you're in the battle, I mean, nothing is, nothing is more where it, where it all is than when life and death is on the line. And when I can find out how my grandfather or how my father responded when missiles were flying over his head, you know, I learned so much about him and about what I want to do if I'm in that kind of situation. We all love the war stories. And so, guys, what you want to do is take your stories and don't hold them back from your kids. Now, I know if you were in battle, sometimes there's some things you, you can hardly talk about. But I'm talking about your life experiences. Don't hold them back. This is a legacy that God intends to pass down to the next generations. Teach them. Teach them what you've learned. So, 
you've got to be a teacher. You've got to learn how to communicate that to your children. And that's the reason that it's so important for us to be reading the Bible to our kids. Because if we're not doing that, we're not teaching them. We're not teaching them how to respond to the natural disasters in their lives. That's how they're going to learn. And then we'll see in just a moment, locusts are from the Lord. Because in Deuteronomy 28, this is one of those judgments that's, that's warned of. If you depart from the Lord, you're going to get locusts. So all Joel is doing is saying, um, excuse me, uh, a few hundred years ago we had a revelation from the Lord. Uh, I'm just here to remind you of it and to apply it in our day. So you can study the Bible. Things happened 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. Uh, excuse me, uh, there's something in the book on this one. <laughs> there's, there's a word from the Lord about this one. You take the ancient word and apply it in modern day. That's exactly what Joel was doing. He had a word that was given a thousand years ago, and he's bringing it into his day. He's a teacher just like we're supposed to be a teacher. So first thing is, is God is speaking to us as elders and telling us to teach. Then you'll notice he speaks to the drunkards and the farmers. And to the drunkards, he's saying, verse 5, wake up. <laughs> and why does he use the word drunkards? Well, because some people just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow will take care of itself. Uh, I'm just having a good time. He's saying, hold it. You guys, sober up. Something is coming that is so astonishing that you can't drink your way through this one. And so when the day of the Lord comes, when He comes in all of His power and majesty and sovereignty, He's going to wake up and sober up the drunkard. And he's, so He's taking the worst case of the one who's lackadaisical. So it's an address to the lackadaisical. And boy, if there were ever a word we need to hear in our day, in the uh, whatever generation... It is wake up. Some things are not just whatever. You can't whatever, whatever God. You can't whatever His judgment. You can't whatever Katrina. Some things come and everybody has to take note of it and everybody has to take it seriously and nobody can pass it off. And gentlemen, I just want to say that is the nature of the Gospel. And that's the reason that when, when John the Baptist was, was telling us about Christ, he said, you know, the axe has come to the root of the tree now. The fire is coming. And there is the deliverer of the goods. There's the, the final judgment. It's Christ. When He comes, everyone should wake up. And it's an announcement that the King has come and is coming. That's the very nature of the Gospel. It's a wake-up call. And so you see that the nation has been invaded. The ground is dried up. We're in absolute dust bowl conditions. We're in a financial freefall. We're going bankrupt as a nation. Would you please wake up? we got problems here. Everybody put their shoulder to the plow and so on. And then he says, despair, you farmers, wail and grieve. And, of course, we've seen before that in the Scriptures, we are actually taught how to grieve. We'll go into more of that later. But the Lord teaches us how to grieve. And we're supposed to learn from Him how to do this. But He's calling on the farmers. He says to the farmers in uh, verses 11 and 12, Hey, you guys notice what's happening. There's no grain in the fields. They're ruined. And He says, the, the vine growers, you grieve. No wheat and barley. The harvest field is destroyed, verse 11. The vine is dried up. The fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple trees go through all the trees of the field. They're all dried up. And then he says, surely the joy of mankind is withered away. So the fields are withered away, and the joy of humanity is withered away. If you don't have any wheat and barley, you're not going to have any beer. If you don't have any, of course, you didn't have beer in those days. But if you don't have any vines, you're not going to have any wine. No joy. No, no drinking at all. So despair, it's all gone. So he's simply saying that when the judgment of the Lord comes, you're going to know it. 
and you're going to weep. Let's, let's learn to weep in the right way. So he's just simply describing the sadness of the judgment of the Lord. And then he calls upon the priests. If you look in verse 13 through 20, this is the fourth group. And uh, he says to them uh, in 1, 13 through 20, put on sackcloth, wail. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the, for the offerings are withheld. <laughs> so he says, priest, listen, you're not escaping this. You live off the tithes of the land and there is no land producing anything. No tithes, no money for you, no offerings coming in. The church offerings have dried up. So even the priest ought to notice it too. And then he says, what do you do? Declare a fast and convene a sacred assembly in order to cry out to the Lord. So the role of the, of the priest is to call upon the people to pray, to call them to cry out. This is one of the main roles of someone who is seeking to minister Christ and His Word and His goodness to the people they're serving and the Lord they're serving. The priest is the mediator between God and humanity. He's trying to bring them together. How do you bring them together when, when disasters happen? You get them to pray. And uh, you, you find this is instinctive among pastors today or church leaders, lay leaders. When things happen, we call the people to pray. One of the first things we did here when Katrina hit, let's have a prayer meeting. Call a prayer meeting, put an email out to all of our members. Come on in, we're going to pray on a certain time. Uh, same thing with 9-11. We had a big prayer meeting. Filled this room with people just praying on, the, on uh, September the 11th, 2001. But that's biblical. When things hit, go to prayer. And let me say to you, when, when you have someone enter your office and tell you they're not, not sure you're going to have a job anymore, you know, you can complain, you can be bitter, you can say, well, okay, I want to take charge of this. Or the first thing you could do is go to the Lord and cry out to Him. Ask Him for help. You know, we, we joke about men who don't want to stop and ask for directions and all this, we want to be independent. Well, that's fine when you're dealing with other people. Men are meant, meant to be leaders who are serving other people. And there, there's something okay about that. But it's not okay if you're dealing with God that way. You can't say to Him, look, God, I'm here to serve you, help you. You know, you need some help. Because after, after all, you're invisible. I've got a body. And I can, I can do the real work here down the earth. Wash your mouth out with soap. Say, Lord, you're the sovereign God. You're the king. You rule over everything, including my heart and all my circumstances. Lord, I need you. I can't take a breath without you. I certainly can't do anything good without you. And I certainly can't handle this disaster without you. Would you give me wisdom and give me strength and give me courage and hope so I won't fall into despair and help me to go walk through this like a man of God? Help me play the man. Help me be what I'm supposed to be. That's the way we respond. And that's what... All of us, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a priest. Now, that's what the New Testament says. And what do priests do? They get people together to pray when we're facing disaster. And then we prepare for the day of the Lord. And we've seen that this day of the Lord, we find five times in Joel, 11 times in other books of the Old Testament. How do you prepare? Well, first of all, realize it's near. How do you know it's near? Because the fields are barren and even the animals are suffering. The animals are crying out for God. And so we... We realize it's near. Now, you ask the question, near? How long has it been since Joel wrote, Wilson? Well, okay, about 2,600 years. So you say that's near. Well, what does the Bible say? To the Lord, a thousand years are but a day. Okay? A thousand years are but a day. So it's been 2.6 days. 
to the Lord. If you're sitting in eternity, what, what perspective would you have on time, on years, on generations? It's like that. So the Lord is sovereign over all of time. To Him, it's just a, a spit in the ocean. And to us, it seems like it's going on forever. It's not going on forever. God's plan is being just worked out. So it's near. That means, what it means is, that we are in a season which is at the edge of history. The meaning of the coming of Christ, especially, shows us that we are on the edge of history. The Messiah has already come incarnate. He's gone to heaven. He said the next big act in God's timetable is that the Messiah comes back visibly. That's the next big act. Just like in Joel's case, the next big act was Babylon. The captivity of Babylon. That happened very soon. And then he says the next big act is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord begins with the coming of Christ. That's the first warning that it's here. It ends when He returns. So we are on the edge of history. We are on the moment like Amen Bible study. You come into the parking lot, it's dark. You go out, it's light. So we're right before the dawn when we come into Amen Bible study. That's exactly descriptive of the age in which we live. That's the way Paul describes it. The night is almost over. The day is nearly here. Therefore, what kind of lives ought we to live? Lives that are living in the light, not in the darkness. Yes, it is dark, this world is, but the light is dawning. And in just a moment, all the light's going to be here. So you better live in the light, even though it's dark, because the light is coming in just a few moments, just when you step out of this, this room. And that's like the age in which we live. You're living in this life, and in just a moment, you're going to step right out of here. Just a moment. And we need to live now in light of those things. And that's what Joel is primarily teaching us. If you want to live a fruitful, intelligent, wise life, if you want to be a highly effective person, here is the main thing you do. You live your life now in view of what's coming next. That's the very nature of a wise person. They do now what, in view of what's coming next. They're very aware of cause and effect. Very aware of the process of time. That's what a wise person is. That's the reason those of you with gray hair, you're very valuable to us. Because you've seen decade upon decade. And you see cause and effect through the generations. Well, here it's even transcendently beyond that. What you want to see is have the eternal perspective. Think about the end of time and live in time in the, from the perspective of seeing the end of time. That's what Joel is doing for us. That's what it's doing for us in our own day. So what we must respond in prayer. To you, O Lord, I will call. So, first of all, we realize the nearness of it, that we're living right before the dawn of the day, and then we learn how to pray and talk to the Lord in the midst of it to get us ready for that coming day. All right, let's turn now to chapter 2. And what we're going to see is that the day of the Lord should cause us not only to call out to the Lord, but to return to the Lord. So the wise person, the one who's going to live effectively, will realize that history is in the hands of the Lord, that history is coming to its conclusion, and therefore I need to talk with him. I've got to develop a conversation with with the God of this universe if he's in charge of it and he's bringing it to an end. And secondly, I need to turn my whole life around. So that I'm returning to Him. So that when He comes back, I'm on the right side. I'm not opposed to this one who's coming back to judge all the earth. Now, the first thing we want to notice in the first 11 verses is that the day of the Lord is alarming. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. 
Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes. See, that army uh, that is uh, spreading across the mountains, it's like locusts. So the army is both a human army and an insect army. If, if, for example, when he says darkness and gloom, when the locusts are coming over, they'll darken the whole earth. Well, when the Chaldeans, the Babylonians come, they too will darken the whole earth. And when God comes to judge, He will darken the whole earth. You see how, how Joel is using this analogy of the locusts to, show, to say to us, this natural disaster is telling you something about the final judgment of God and about how we ought to live. So like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours, and so on. So first of all, the day of the Lord is alarming. It is imminent. In verse 1, it is coming. It is close at hand. And secondly, it is ominous. Ominous. Awesome. Powerful. And any man in his right mind will fear the Lord and hold in reverence His judgments because it will be beyond anything we've ever seen. Now, just quickly, let's look at some of these descriptors that are found in these ten verses. First of all, it's foreboding. Secondly, it's awesome. Thirdly, it's unprecedented. There, there will not have been anything like it before that day. And now this was warned in Deuteronomy. The, the Moses in the Pentateuch gave fair warning that they would be taken into exile if they disobeyed the Lord. And Joel is simply applying the Bible, saying you all are disobeying the Lord. The Lord is going to live up to His judgments and to His own character. And He's coming. And it's going to be at least these things. Furthermore, it is inescapable. Nothing escapes them. So if you think that you, know, you can just go on and live the way you want to, God won't notice. Or there's going to be such a pile of humanity that you'll get lost in the crowd. Wrong. No one will escape His judgment. Everyone will face His judgment. I will face His judgment. You will face His judgment. Everybody from every nation and every generation will face the judgment of God. So this is something we all have to contend with, and it's in the conscience of humanity. It is horrifying. If, we're, if we are not saved from this judgment by the Lord, it is indeed horrifying. Every face turns pale. It is earth-shattering. If, uh, how many of you here have actually been in an earthquake? Raise your hands high. Okay, I, I haven't, except for the little rumblings we've gotten here. But for those of you who've been in it, I understand that there's nothing more terrifying than when the ground starts to move underneath you. Is this right? I mean, the one thing we depend upon, you know, if you're up in an airplane, I have been in some very bad flights before. I'm just praying, oh, God, you know, get us safely home. I still have young children, you know, at that time. Uh, I'd like to live. And, and that when you get down on the ground, although you're, you're kind of sick and nauseated from all the bumping around, you're just so glad to have solid ground under your feet. Now this ground, the very thing you know is ground zero, the thing that won't move on you, it starts moving. So even that which you consider non-relative becomes relative, starts moving. That's terrifying. And this is what's happened with the judgment. Everything that you took for granted that's not going to change, it starts moving and changing. 
everything that you thought was non-contingent becomes contingent under the non-contingent God. It's earth-shattering. The earth shakes. It's supernatural. Now, this is a key point. I want to camp on this with you for just a moment. When he, if he says, if you look in verse 11, you have a very important statement. He says, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. And if you'll look at verse 25, you get a similar statement. I will repay you. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm. Those, those words for locusts again. Look at this. My great army that I sent among you. Whoa. Whoa. God, it was bad enough that the locusts came. You're telling me you sent them? I'm telling you more than that. I'm telling you not only I sent them, but I was at the head of the pack. Whoa. Now, guys, we've tried to tame God in many many ways. As I've traveled and listened to people in different cultures talk about God and listened to Christians from different cultural backgrounds around the world talk about God, here is the tendency of every Christian in every culture. Every Christian in every culture, as well as every person in every culture, tends to want to tame God and co-opt Him into their culture so that He becomes like a tribal deity. He's for us, America the elect, and he's using us to defend justice and freedom around the world. We just co-opted God, <laughs> the American way, God in the American way. That's how we do it. That's our civil religion. Every culture tends to do that. Because instead of putting God on the throne, they put their own culture, their own nationality, their own values at the throne. And God surely is here to promote my values. <laughs> because after all, I got him from him. So we co-opt him in many ways. One of the ways in which we co-opt God is that we say God is nice and God really wouldn't hurt a flea. And all the evil you see in the world, I mean, one thing that we know about the evil in the world, God has nothing to do with that because he hates it. And storms and locusts and earthquakes are not God's fault. Don't blame God for that. And you hear this on the TV waves from evangelical ministers who are being interviewed. Read Joel! I want to say to some of those ministers, He's at the head of the pack! He's leading the hurricane! How's that for God? Try to co-opt that. See if He fits into your little paradigm of God being nice, being on your side, and never hurting a flea. God hurts fleas. He hurts humans. Not for the destruction of His people. Every hurt in your life is designed to bring you good ultimately. You don't understand it. You're a kid. What do you know? You don't understand the adult world. You're a kid. The adult world is God's world. And you don't see things the way He does because He sees everything through all the ages. You only see your little window of time and your little body with your little circumstances. You're like a kid. You just see your, your little thing. And you measure everything by your happiness. That's the way every one of us is. We measure God's character by whether we're happy or not. 
And Joel says to the people, listen to me, you cannot judge God's character by whether your farms are working, your vats are full, and there are offerings in the offering plate. God is still the sovereign Lord. Let me show you some examples in the scriptures. Leave your finger there. We're coming back. Turn over to Isaiah, a few books previous in your Bible. Isaiah 45. And in Isaiah 45, Isaiah is speaking. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah to explain this Babylonian captivity where the women and children were slaughtered. And the holy city was destroyed. Who would want to say God was behind that? Surely God hates that. And He hates the Babylonians who destroy His people. Well, look at chapter 45, verse 7. I form the light, says the Lord, and create darkness. I bring prosperity. This is page 1154 in your Bible. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Whoa. I create disaster? The word for disaster is rah. In the Hebrew, which can also be translated evil. Now, this is a problem because we know know, from other places of the Bible, God is not the origin of evil. God is good. He is holy. There is no shadow of darkness within him at all. So how do you explain this? What it means is he he takes evil once it comes into our universe and he orders it. Nothing evil happens unless God has allowed it sovereignly. Now, by allowing, I don't mean that He doesn't direct it. I don't mean that He didn't ordain it. I just mean that He's not the original cause of it back in eternity or in time. He's not the original. We don't know where evil came from. If you're wondering, doesn't matter whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Jew, secularist, you don't know where evil came from either. Arminian, Calvinist, nobody knows where evil came from. All we can deal with is what does God do with evil once it's here? And the Bible shows us He's in charge. So the evil things in your life, let me tell you how great God is. He's at the head of the pack. Now, if you're following Christ, no matter whether you lose a leg or lose your life or lose your wife, God is graciously working through your pain. To bring about good for all of his people. When we get to heaven, he won't use pain anymore. Because we won't be sinners anymore and it won't be a broken world anymore. But the tragedy of our being in this life, in a broken world, and being sinners, is that God does use what's available in this broken world to love his children. And he disciplines us through pain and through evil. He doesn't cause it, but he orders it. You could turn to Lamentations. We won't take the time. But you'll find the same thing in Lamentations 3. Just make a note to look at Lamentations 3, verses 37 through 39. You'll find the same thing. Jeremiah, who's lamenting, Lamentations, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem, says God has ordered these things. And that's what Joel is saying. He's at the head of the locusts. He's at the head of the Babylonians. These vicious enemies from Iraq. He says, I'm at the head of the pack. I'm leading them. And when we get to Habakkuk, we'll see it just blows Habakkuk's mind. He can't understand that. Why God would would allow these wicked, godless people to destroy God's people. He doesn't get it until the end of Habakkuk. But I want us to notice it's supernatural. 
And God is in charge, and it's for good purposes to bring about His glory and the good of His people. It's unendurable. Apart from Jesus Christ, we find in the book of Revelation, you can't take these things. They're unendurable. Who can endure this? Who can stand the day of the Lord? As we read in other parts of the Bible. So, these are the descriptors for this day of the Lord that's coming. Also, we see in verses 12 through 17, quickly, the day of the Lord is arresting. It's arresting. What must we do? If, if this is tragic, if the Lord is in it, what is the purpose of all of this? Well, repent. Verses 12, 13a, look at it, 2.12. Even now, declares the Lord, return. That just means turn, shuv, we've seen in the Hebrew. You can spell that S-H-U-V if you want to. Shuv, return to me with all your heart, with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Look at this. Don't rend your coat. Don't tear your coat. Tear your heart. Because you know that when bad things happen, oftentimes the priests would take their garments and go and tear their clothes. And they would do that as a sign of mourning and a sign of being in the presence of God in His judgments. Or if someone committed blasphemy. You know, when Jesus said that He was the Son of God, the Sanhedrin tore their coats. Blasphemy in the presence of God. Joel is saying, look, that's fine. Appreciate your nice rituals and traditions. You know, ash Wednesday, put a little ash on your forehead. And all that. It's great. Nothing wrong with that. But look, that's not, that's not primarily what I'm interested in. He's saying, look, don't, don't put the ashes on your forehead. Put them on your heart. Don't tear your cloak. Tear your heart. So he's after our hearts, we see clearly. Uh, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. So turn, turn, turn. Return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now, I want us to stop for just a moment here and talk about repentance. What does it mean to repent? And uh, so we're going to take a little side road here. And I think you see this on the back of your sheet somewhere there. Maybe it's the next page. Let's take a look at it. First of all, it is a gift of God. He gives it. You say, I thought this is something I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to do the turning. God doesn't do the turning. No, God doesn't. <clears throat> you do the turning. God, does, does, God gives you the gift of turning. You say, well, how can that be? I'm doing the turning. I don't know. I'm just telling you what the book says. Uh, Acts 11:18 says he gave repentance to the Gentiles. And, of course, they were all amazed. Repentance to the Gentiles? Who ever heard of that? Babylonians don't repent. Greeks don't repent. Romans don't repent. Oh, yes, they do. Because God has chosen to give them the gift. So if you are repentant, if you have turned to the Lord, let me tell you, God was the cause of that. He wasn't the, the original cause of evil, but He is the original cause of everything good. And He gave you the gift. You're exercising a gift He gave you. So, it comes from God. It's a grace, as we call it. So be thankful for it. Secondly, it is absolutely necessary for salvation. And you see these texts here. When Luke says, or I'm sorry, when Jesus says in Luke 24 to his disciples that we're to go out and preach forgiveness of sins to the, all the nations, he says we're to, repeat, we're to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. 
So it's part of our proclamation. God, the great God, who is the judge of all the earth, has said that if you'll turn to Him, He'll forgive you. He'll cancel all your transgressions. Everything you did against the sovereign King, there's complete pardon. It's completely erased. There's no criminal record forever for you. And let me tell you, you must repent and turn to the Lord. So you receive His forgiveness and you give Him your life all in one motion. And there's a truncated gospel out there that just says, come to God as you are. He doesn't care what you do. You can just keep on going as you are. Just God loves you. Well, there's almost truth in that. God does love you and He'll take you just as you are, but He doesn't leave you just as you are. He takes you just as you are and transforms you from the heart out. And if you don't want to be transformed from the heart out, you don't want the forgiveness of your sins. Those two go together. I was talking to a woman one night, or one day. I said, uh, what, what is it uh, that keeps you from accepting God's grace in your life? From receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? I said, what, what would change in your life if you became a Christian? She said, my Saturday nights would change. <laughs> I said, so you're telling me you like to get drunk and mess around on Saturday night more than going to heaven. Well, I hadn't thought about it that way, preacher. I said, well, that's exactly what you're saying to me. You don't want to turn. You don't want to turn your life. So you'd rather go to hell and have parties on Saturday night than to live forever. It's stupidity, guys. Some of you in this room are thinking this way. That is stupid. Anybody who ran a business on those kinds of grounds would not be running the business long. It would run it into the ground, and you're running the business of your life into the ground. You're going bankrupt. You're taking these borrowed days that you have on. You're, you're borrowing money to live. Uh, live it up, and you're not running your business. Where's this business going to go? You're just you're going, you know, taking these vacations and trips and buying houses and cars. Pretty soon the bank is going to catch up with you and call your note in. And that's why you're living life. Raise hell and pay no attention to eternity, and you are going to be bankrupt and the note's going to be called in. There's just no way around it. You need the note canceled. Get it canceled now. Get your life turned around. You do these two at the same time. Receive the forgiveness of all your debts and give your life to Him as screwed up as it is. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to go in a new direction. That's the difference. So that's what he's saying. It is necessary for salvation, for receiving the forgiveness of your sins. It's necessary that you have a repentant faith in Christ. Now, what does it consist of? And I've given you some references here that will also help. First of all, it consists in belief in the gospel. If you'll notice in Joel 2.13, he says, Rend your heart and not your garment. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For He is gracious and compassionate. You notice Joel doesn't say, Turn to the Lord because He's angry with you and probably going to send you to hell, but you better turn. No. Turn to the Lord. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's abounding in steadfast love and affection. And He will not harbor His grievances against you forever. If you turn to Him, He's gracious. You see, you've got to behold Christ before you can repent. So we preach Christ so that you see that when you repent, you're going to be received. What's the use of making that investment in repentance and He's going to turn you away? No, I'm telling you right now, He's not going to turn you away. And unless I tell you that and you believe it, you're not going to repent. So you must believe the good news of Jesus Christ first and then you bring your life with Him. You behold that He's gracious 
And then you come and bring your life to Him because He is gracious. So the first thing that's required is belief in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and His provision on the cross providing for the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, a conviction of sin. So first of all, in repentance, you must believe the good news. And there's good news in Joel. And then, believing the good news, you then have a conviction of your sin. You say, what is conviction? Sounds like something legal. Well, it is kind of. You're basically looking at what you said to your wife yesterday. And you say, guilty. I'm not guilty because I'm forgiven by the cross. But that sin is wrong. So, before my wife, I'm guilty. So that was wrong. It's just like when Nathan came to David. You know, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and assured that her husband would be killed since she was pregnant and they could blame the pregnancy on Uriah because he wasn't alive to deny it. So he has an affair with Bathsheba, sees that Uriah gets killed, and then tries to, you know, wash his hands of it and just he'll, out of the grace of his kingly heart, he'll take Bathsheba into the palace because, after all, her warrior husband, who is fighting for him, Lost his life, so he'll care for this poor Bathsheba. Oh, and she's pregnant by your right. Well, I'll care for that child too. How magnanimous you are, David. That's the role he was going to play. Just, yeah, I can get through this one. I'm just going to stiff upper lip it. I'm going to stonewall. I'm going to do what I learned from Clinton and all the rest of them. I'm just going to just say, you know, I never had sex with that woman. I'm just going to just bull- bulldoze my way right through it. His problem was, He had a prophet in his house. (laughs) He had a guy like Joel. Listen, if you want to live a life like that, don't have friends like Joel. Just don't get them into your life. You know, just connect with superficial, denying, stonewalling pagans like yourself. Uh, And you'll be a lot happier. You get a guy like Joel in your house, he's going to screw up all your happiness. You're not going to get away with anything. And David, who was a man after God's own heart, had a man of God in his house as a friend. His name was Nathan. And Nathan told David this little story about a man who was very wealthy and, and uh, when he wanted to, to have a banquet for his guests, he didn't take one of his own animals. He took the, own, the one little ewe lamb of his neighbor, his poor neighbor, and killed that ewe lamb who was a pet in the house of this poor man. And David was incensed with a sense of injustice. He said, I'll have that man's head. And Nathan said, you're the man. Here's a poor man, Uriah. Had one little ewe lamb. He didn't have several wives like you, David. He had one little ewe lamb. He loved her. And instead of taking the women that you had in your own house, you took his woman and killed it. You're the man, David. Now, David could have stonewalled. I mean, it, some people are so good at stonewalling. I mean, some, I mean, they can come up with all kinds of rationale. David stopped right there. Conviction of sin. He got caught. He shouldn't have gone that long anyway. But when he got the Word of God, in this case from a prophet, in our case from the Bible, when he got the Word of God, he said, I have sinned. That's the end of the matter. And now I'm going to deal with having sinned. And in his case, he lost the child from Bathsheba. And he publicly repented of it. And he made his repentance as famous as his sin. And that's the reason we have it in 1 Samuel. So when you have scattered shame over your family or over your church or over your community, then you are interested in making your repentance as famous as your sin. And you make restitution to the people involved. But you're convicted, first of all. That's wrong. 
That is sin. It's rebellion against God. And if you read Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. And here's a man who had Uriah murdered. But when it compares to the sin against God, he says, Against you and you alone. I mean, my ultimate sin was in grieving you and changing, trying to change your law to suit me and co-opt you into my kingly desires instead of making you the king and you co-opting me into your kingly desires. So there's a conviction of having done that. Now, the word conviction is a word that mean, can also mean in the Greek, and this is in the New Testament, to turn the light on. So conviction doesn't mean I'm damned, I'm guilty, I'm condemned. No, that's not conviction. Conviction is grief. It's like you're sitting in the dungeon and you've been using the bathroom on the floor in the corners of the dungeon and it's dark in there. You know it smells bad. But then finally someone comes in with a blazing torch and the whole room lights up and you go, Good heavens! What is this crap that I'm living in? It's, golly, what is this? That's conviction. That's what happened to David. You're right. I've sinned. So, before you can repent of something, the light has to turn on and you have to see it for what it is. It's crap. And you have to, don't, you have to call it that. Call it sin. That's what it is. It's awful. Now, after that, you'll notice that the next step is sorrow for sin. And we're not sorry primarily because we got caught, gentlemen. And that's most of the sorrow in our lives. Is this someone found out? You know, you, your wife found out that you're looking at dirty pictures and you're sorry because she found out. How about being sorry that you were lusting after a person that doesn't belong to you? Even more importantly, how about being sorry that you were lusting after women instead of after Christ. You see, you have to focus your sorrow on God and your relationship with Him. The sociopath is very sorry. I've had people who have committed adultery on their wives and abandoned their wives and mistreated their children and stolen from their companies. They've, they've been in my office and they'll be in, sobbing in a pool of tears. And go out the door and they'll feel better. And then they'll come back two weeks later, sob again with tears. That's sociopathic behavior. I'm sorry because I got caught. But there is a sorrow, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, that leads to repentance. And that sorrow is a godly, what we call a godly sorrow. It's a sorrow that's focused on having grieved the Lord. And then confession of your sin to God. And to others. Now, Roman Catholic folks, you all are better at the to others part. I want to talk to the Protestants just a minute on that. What we want to do is confess our particular sins particularly. And I can't remember all my sins. I've committed sins already this morning that have already gone, you know, sins of the mind, because I wasn't talking to anybody until I got here. Maybe, And I'm sure I've sinned already in talking to you. But in my mind, I know I've sinned, but I don't even remember them. I mean, you know, there's just too many of them. But my task in growing as a Christian man is to remember more of them and to confess them more often and just keep a regular minute-by-minute relationship with the Lord. Lord, I'm sorry that I, that I entertained that thought. 
I'm sorry that I opened up that website or that was against your law and it was disgraceful to you. You're sitting right here with me and I put you through that to watch this stuff on the Internet. Lord, I'm sorry. Please grant me repentance. Help me. Cast yourself upon his mercy. Just do that regularly all day long. Just talk to him. Talk to him. He's a holy God. He's in your presence. Just talk to him. And just as you would if Billy Graham were sitting right next to you and heard everything that you said, watched everything you did, and if Billy were there, you say, Dr. Graham, I'm sorry. You know, I, I feel like such a creep. You know, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. And he'll say, son, that's okay. I'm a sinner too. And he'll pat you on the back. Let's just go on from here. Well, the Lord is not a sinner. So he, says, he doesn't say, that's okay. I'm a sinner too. But he says, that's okay. I'm your father. I love you. Now let's turn around. Come on. Let's, let's turn this around. Now let's, let's go in a new direction. Come on. I'm with you. I'll help you. Just, call, just ask me. That's the kind of conversation you have with the Lord uh, to confess your sins to Him. Now to others, gentlemen, uh, some of you are in small groups and uh, either amen groups or some other groups. That, that's so good. And as those groups grow and as your confidence in each other grows, hopefully you can be honest about your own sins. Because James says something very important about confessing to one another our sins. You know, the Roman Catholics, you guys have priests. And you can go to your priest and, you know, go through the litany of the sins you remember. And he will announce absolution for you. Protestants say, well, we don't believe in priests. We have Christ who's our priest. Well, that's, that's good. We go directly with Christ. We don't have to have a mediator between us and Christ. Christ is our mediator between us and God. Fine. Good theology. Here's where your theology is not so good. You also have a bunch of little priests. They're called Christians. Brothers. And Protestants sometimes will say, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Every believer is a priest. So we don't need a guy with a, you know, his collar turned around backwards to, you know, to, for us to confess our sins to him. Okay, you say you believe in the priesthood of all believers. You know what you really believe in? The priesthood of no believers. Because we're using nobody as a priest. So if you believe in the priesthood of all believers, then let's learn how to be priests. Maybe you can take a page out of the Roman, your Roman Catholic friends. What do they do? They listen to each other's sins. And then they assure each other they're forgiven. Okay? So let's learn that skill as brothers. If you want to be priests, those of you who are Protestants, you want priests of all believers, okay, let's do it. Let's be priests. And let's learn that there needs to be someone in your life with whom you have that kind of relationship. I'm not everybody. You, you know, the Roman Catholics go into a booth and only the one priest hears the confession. Protestants, you're saying you believe in the priesthood of all believers, so we expect it to be a little bit more liberal than that. But it can't be the whole congregation because we're not mature enough to handle it, nor do we know you well enough to handle it, nor should you trust people with those secrets. So you learn how to trust people with whom you can not just share how you've been victimized, share how tough business is, share how lousy your wife is, but where you share your sin. And then your brothers say, I understand. Because I'm just like you. And I want to remind you and me of something very important. When Christ died on the cross, He died for all the sins you just mentioned. And all the sins I could mention. And let's go out of here with our heads up, thankful and grateful. That's priestly service to each other. So it involves confession. Not just conviction. Not just sorrow. Open your mouth and confess it. Call upon the Lord. Then it involves a hatred of sin. 
Whoops, time's up. That's it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day together. And as we continue this theme of repentance and what it means, we pray that you will help us to learn how to turn to you, that we may enjoy all of the blessings of the repentant life, a life that is aware of you as judge and you as Savior. And may we take that into our souls and may it inform every thought, every word, and every action today and every day. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.